welcome to the Nursing Standard Podcast. We're here at Nursing Live at the ACC in Liverpool, a new event that celebrates all things nurses and nursing. I'm Alison Stacey, Senior Reporter at RCNI, and I'm joined by children's author and broadcaster, Michael Rosen. Michael, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Many of our nurses here at Nursing Live today know you as a proud champion of nurses and we'll be looking forward to seeing you speak later today. Are you excited to be here? Very, yes, it's wonderful. Um, so a lot of our nurses here at the event will know you from your wonderful poems and children's stories, um, of course going on a bear hunt, but they'll also know you from your poem, This Is You, You're Looking At You, inspired by your treatment for COVID-19 during the pandemic. Tell me how that came about. You wrote the poem on the back of diaries kept by your nurses, is that right? Yes, and I was approached by a group, um, I think they were called Shiny Minds. Uh, I think so, that's mm-hmm. just off the top of my head, and my memory's not very good, so if they were called something altogether different, like chocolate biscuits, <laughs> then I'm really sorry. I'm but sure. I think they were called Shiny Minds, and um, they asked me to write something about nurses and nursing and how nurses have to be have to look after themselves but be looked after which of course is a is a complete turnaround for somebody like me because I'm not a nurse and I'm I have been cared for by nurses so uh, it was a it was a nice challenge and that that's why I wrote that poem yes and it is about asking nurses to look at themselves if you like I mean it sounds a bit patronizing but um, you know that you your eyes, you nurses, are focused on us, the patients. But what happens if you swivel your eyes round and look back inside yourselves? Mm-hmm. So let's go back to that time in your life. Tell me about when you first became ill with COVID and, and what happened. Yes, I got ill with COVID in March 2020. And I got iller and iller and my wife was getting worried about me. I was getting weaker and weaker, but um, you couldn't get tested at the time and you couldn't go and see your GP. You couldn't just sort of walk in anyway. I'm not sure I was strong enough. Um, and um, you couldn't just be taken to A&E either. Um, so there was quite a lot of um, sort of pressure on people. Uh, all you could do was um, ring, ring the paramedics. Um, <laughs> And uh, it was quite odd, really, because I remember two or three times that we got through to the paramedics and they just asked me to breathe down the phone and um, and to cough. And I did that, and they said, oh, well, you haven't got COVID. They said, well, are you worse than you were yesterday? I said, no, because I didn't feel particularly worse than I had the day before. That's extraordinary, to, isn't it? That well, that's you how, know... What was happening at the time? Yes, but the thing was, you see, of course, COVID, is, you, you, you experience it very differentially in mm. very different ways so that that was the way it was uh, but luckily we have a friend who's a neighbor and a gp she came over with an oximeter a little instrument that i'd never seen before but of course familiar to everybody listening here mm-hmm. and she asked emma my wife to uh, the gp asked my wife to pin it on my finger first time i'd ever d- had done this actually and then emma called out to the gp she said it's 58 and <laughs> Um, the doctor, Katie, she said, no, 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 that'll be the pulse. And Emma said, no, the pulse is 115. The, the, that is the, the SATs level. The, the, that is what it's reading, 58. And uh, later, Katie wrote in her little letter to us that she'd never seen anybody conscious uh, with a SAT level at uh, 58 because it should be 95 plus. 
Wow. And um, so I was sort of nearly on the way out at that point. And so Katie said, quick, take Michael to A&E. I'll ring ahead to tell them that you're coming. So I didn't want to, and I couldn't, because I felt so weak. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think I could even get downstairs. So Katie said, oh, bump down the stairs, meaning on my backside. So I bumped down the stairs, and then Emma, and with our daughter Elsie in the back, took me to the Whittington Hospital, that's in North London, uh, mm -hmm. near Archway, and um, took me there. And I was taken straight into intensive care, but I thrived quite quickly uh, on a, a mask, you know, an oxygen mask, CPAP, I think it's called, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I did all right, but then I dipped again. And I, I've got no memory of this at all, but um, all I can remember is that suddenly I'm lying in a bed in a room or a little annex, and the doctor is saying, will, I sign, will you sign this piece of paper that will allow us to put you to sleep? And I said, looked at him and I said, well, will I wake up? And he said, well, you've got a 50-50 chance. And I said, oh, right, if I don't sign, he said, well, you've got zero. So I signed. And then I don't really know anything. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't even know, if, I didn't at the time, know for how long, but I just got these vague sensations and memories of all the, I got a sensation of having gloves on at one point, having a nasogastric tube, another point I, I'm confused by which wards I was in mm -hmm. this was going on um, I now know that I was in um, I was in an induced coma for about 40 days uh, but I had no idea that was the case so my very first recollections of nursing nurses and doctors after that um, I'm either in the intensive care unit um, Yes, in the intensive care unit as I've come round, uh, and then in the ward where I was, the general ward afterwards, it was actually a geriatric ward, mm -hmm. which is quite funny. <laughs> um, and um, They must have not had any space anywhere else. Exactly, <laughs> but it, was, um, it, it wasn't very pleasant, I have to say, no. in the geriatric ward, partly because I think some of the nurses thought I was sort of a skiver or something, you know, that I wasn't senile, and um, I wasn't actually on the way out and I looked a bit perky. So I remember nurses coming up to me and saying, what are you in here for? And they're going, well, I don't know. And then if you don't know and I don't know, well, we're both in trouble, aren't we? Anyway, there was sort of a little bit, of, there was a slight sort of edge going on there. Mm -hmm. And then, um, because I couldn't stand up and couldn't walk, because I was so deconditioned from mm -hmm. having been in the coma, um, I was very, very lucky. I got into a, a rehab hospital, NHS rehab hospital for three weeks where they taught me how to stand up and walk so that was with um, OTs, occupational therapists, physiotherapists and nurses and they got me walking I mean it was incredible I mean I just remember thinking I'll never walk again, I don't know why I thought wow. that but in that sort of slightly passive way you know, you know patients, some patients are very angry and aggressive and I, I'm a bit more like passive than that, people come and tell me things and I go right <laughs> You know, people come and say, you nearly died. And I go, right. Or they say, you know, we're going to get you to walk. And I go, oh, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm a bit, a bit odd in that way. Um, and so sure enough, in three weeks, they, they got me to walk. And yes. were you allowed visitors or anything at that time? Or no, was it... It, was, it, was, it was locked down. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, uh, if I just wind back to the coma, mm -hmm. that though, when they took me off the meds, I didn't actually wake up. But, you know, you'll know, or people listening, is that... If you go over 
20 days in an induced coma and they take you off the meds, there's quite a good chance that you, it'll be very difficult to bring you round. Mm -hmm. And also, um, my left eye, my pupil, was dilated and not responding. See, look like this, you see, I'm, yes. not, I'm not blinking. Yeah. Um, and it's because I, I don't really, haven't got sight in the eye because I had micro bleeds in my brain that seemed to have knocked out my optic nerve and auditory nerve. And um, they thought I was quite severely brain damaged. Um, so I wasn't waking up, I wasn't responding to things, though I was sort of muttering, I gather, and sort of writhing around in the bed a bit. So the um, professor, the consultant, had an idea of bringing Emma in, my wife, mm -hmm. bringing her in, and so I was wheeled out of the ICU where there's an open atrium area, and because there were no visitors, it was completely open and free of people. And Emma played recordings of our children and my older children in my ear and I reacted apparently Emma held my hand she said um, and I kind of waved my arm about mm -hmm. and then when they wheeled me back into the lift according to Professor Hugh Montgomery um, that was the game changer um, I didn't stop talking which will surprise people listening to this <laughs> they will be amazed that I didn't stop talking um, anyway so that was the first visit from Emma or possibly I think she got a vague memory of being hoisted do you know the hoist that you have by the sure, side yeah. so I think that was at the Whittington they hoisted me and I went to see Emma oh that's right again on the atrium and the children came in and I've got this memory see I'm shutting my eyes now um, and of getting very weak while they were talking to me and being sorry being apologetic that I was weak and then when they wheeled me out again back to the world. I didn't even have the strength to look round and say goodbye to them. And then I, I then said, would you tell Emma I was sorry that I didn't look round? So that was a second visit. And then when I was in the rehab, um, it was summer, you see, by then. It was June. Wow. And, and not flaming June it was. And so Emma was allowed to come to the garden outside. Mm -hmm. There's a garden at St Pancras. And um, so I was sitting on in, in my wheelchair with a blanket. And my wife and uh, children... Uh, our children and my older ones came to see me mm -hmm. and I think they did that twice oh and Emma also came to see me in the gym that's right and I was so anxious I can remember this I mean I, I don't usually get anxious about many things but for some reason I got terribly anxious that Emma was coming to see me in the gym would she would she see me walking mm -hmm. you see because I was very, very wobbly. I mean, I'm still quite wobbly, but I was very, very wobbly then, and I thought I'd fall over or something like that. And I can remember Ashma, the, um, the OT, saying to me, all right, Michael, well, let's see if you can walk across the gym. And I got about a halfway across. Yeah, I got halfway across, and then sort of suddenly felt very weak and stumbly, and so I stopped. And I can remember feeling ashamed mm -hmm. that I couldn't walk the whole length of the gym, and I remember saying sorry to Emma. I don't know why. She said, it doesn't matter, you know, she was being... It was a strange dynamic between us that I felt I had to apologise to her that I couldn't walk. And was that because you'd been in the coma for so long that yeah. your muscles had got weak? Yeah, that would have that's right. You, you're completely... 40 days, you're lying on your back. Mm -hmm. Half the time I was intubated, so I had... The breathing was done for me. Um, that's what saved my life, really. Um, yes. So you don't actually remember when you were in the induced coma, sort of the, the care that you 
experience from the nurses, was that later something you, you discovered in the diaries that they'd kept? That's right. So a patient diary was kept for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it my very patient diary. <laughs> and um, yes, so nurses and people who had come in from uh, physiotherapy, speech and language therapy, uh, from all over the hospital, because uh, you know, a combination of being too many people coming in and understaffed, that's people sick and so on, coming in. Um, so when I read the diary, in fact, quite a few of the entries are not by nurses, they're mm-hmm. by people like, you know, speech and language therapists are upgraded to be a nurse for the, for the period. Um, so there were 24 of us in the intensive care unit, but there were only places for 11. So this is uh, April and May 2020. And it was a very stressful time for the nurses, I know that, because I remember Hugh Montgomery, the professor consultant, telling me that 42% of us died um, in, that, in that unit. Wow. Um, I didn't. And, uh, well, it's a spoiler alert there, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, so that must have had quite a toll, a heavy toll on the staff that were there. I'm afraid so. Yeah. There, there are nurses that I've met since who haven't been able to go back. Um, I think... You know, you can be trained to a lit up to a level mm-hmm. to understand that the person you're caring for that second may die the next second. But also, some of the people who maybe were nurses but not trained at that level of it's not acceptance of mortality, but it's an understanding that it will happen, mm-hmm. and that the person you're caring for and devoting all this energy and experience and knowledge and care to compassion. Um, that may be the end, and then you're carrying that burden, maybe also on the behalf of the family. When the family, you meet the family, meet the loved ones, whatever the, the bereaved, you may then have the burden of talking to them. Mm-hmm. It's not just the doctors, it's, it'll be the nurses and saying, and with uh, lockdown and, and uh, the restrictions on movement and so on, sometimes it was nurses who were the last people to see the person who died, for the previous week, two weeks, and so of course there's there's a great need there on the on the part of the families to say, well, what was it like, you know, and so on. So nurses were having to tell stories, and that's that was that was it's been quite a burden for them. Yeah, I mean, very heavy I'm speaking burden. on their on on their behalf now, mm-hmm. but I know that's what happened. Um, there, there was FaceTime, um, and so. I know I, I spoke to Emma by FaceTime, and also when they opened it up, m- my daughter tells me they took photographs of me, but they won't show me, because <laughs> they said, well, just to be crude about it, you look nearly dead, Dad, or you look dead. So I keep saying, well, can I see it? And they go, no, 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 because you'll put it on Twitter. <laughs> and I go, well, no, I won't, I won't, I promise. And they go, yeah, 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 we know. <laughs> so anyway, I, I've been prevented from seeing these cadaverous yeah. pictures um, but um, I mean I'm making light of it um, I know what you know that the weight that was carried by nurses then and always intensive care is a very incredibly well you know it's called intensive it is also intense mm-hmm. it's intense emotionally and I know that from the diary um, and the diary is unbelievably moving I mean it, it really is I mean I've put quite long extracts in my book 
uh, many different kinds of love. It's actually at the RCN headquarters at the moment in their exhibition. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, in fact, um, yeah, you stole it off me. <laughs> no, I'm actually going to get quite cross <laughs> now, because I was on, um, uh, what's it called, the repair shop, Yes. where it got repaired, oh. and I thought, yes, I've got my diary, and it's repaired and the rest of it, and suddenly... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we want your diary. No, you can't have it. Yeah, we want the diary. And they, yeah, they've nicked it off me. And I think now they've possibly taken it to Edinburgh as well. Oh, so yes, till, till, I don't know, next year. So I'm, I'm, I've got a photocopy of it. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out for getting my diary back. Yeah. Well, hopefully some of the other nurses can come and have a look at it before, before yes. we give it back to you. So, yeah. I mean, it, what did that experience then of... Um, did, did it change or reinforce sort of ideas that you had about the nursing profession before? Um, I've been in hospital before and mm. served my dad and my mum and my kids. So, you know, well, well aware of the nursing profession. Mm. And I'm, I was born in 46 before the NHS. So mm. um, my parents always, always made clear, I've, I've described it, but they always made clear that, you know, before the war, and they didn't have an NHS. All healthcare was very piecemeal. It was a combination of charities and, you know, if you scraped together a bit of money, you could get a bit of private care. You know, they, they came from quite poor backgrounds, my parents. And so mm -hmm. the, it was like a lottery, like a gamble, whether you would get healthcare. My father's mother was ill with polio. And I've got a letter from him as a seven-year-old boy writing to what was then the London Hospital, now the Royal London. Um, you know, this was like a, a sort of very, very worrying thing, health, and whether you'd be cared for or whether you would just die because of lack of money and resources. Mm -hmm. And then the NHS came along, and to my parents, it seemed like a kind of utopia that you could just be ill and and then you would see a doctor. Mm -hmm. And then you, if you were very ill, you'd go to hospital. This seemed to them a kind of utopia, and when for a short period I said to my parents I wanted to be a doctor, this was like a kind of, I don't know, I think they thought I was going to become an angel. <laughs> that, that I sort of transformed from being their son Michael, who was sort of a bit of a kind of yobbo and a bit of a, a kind of uh, at a loose end about various things. And suddenly I became this sort of godlike figure, you know, Michael's going to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And then when I decided I didn't want to be a doctor, it was like a terrible moment for them. They, you they, ripped out their heart. I did, I did. And, you know, some of it was a sort of, you know, I sometimes call it, in the nicest possible way, kind of immigrantitis. My parents are Jewish, and mm -hmm. um, my father was, in fact, an immigrant. He came from America. Their, their parents and grandparents were immigrants and so on. And so becoming a doctor for people of immigrant background is like a huge step up. And it's also this idea of this wonderfully portable knowledge and ability you have. You can help people anywhere in the world, can't you? Do you see? Yeah. That if you've got nursing skills or physiotherapy or doctor, any, th any of those skills, you could go anywhere in the world and mend a leg or you could check with somebody's got a fever and what they could do. And I think my parents thought it was a sort of form of magic and they hero worship doctors. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's all by way of saying that, of course, I, I, you know, the, the idea of the medical profession was incredibly highly regarded in my home. So, yes, so when I got this big uh, sickness, illness, um, it reinforced everything that I thought anyway. Um, you know, if a nurse came to my bedside and said, 
you know, you need this or something like that. It, it, you know, I sort of felt um, almost obliged to them. Um, it's a bit hard to describe, but there's a certain reverence anyway that um, expressed towards anything to do with medicine because it's caring. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a sentimental word. Some people use it in a very sentimental way. But I know that caring is hard work. You know, I've got children. You know, <laughs> yes. If you care for your children, it is hard work. Mm -hmm. You know, but we've got this, we can go a bit sort of schmaltzy around care and go, oh, nice, isn't it? She's caring. But everybody who cares, you know, people who are caring for adults, you know, people caring for old people, caring for babies, it's all really hard work. You know, singing a lullaby and trying to get your baby to go to sleep, God, oh, blimey, it's hard work. You know, you could spend two hours doing it and they're still wide awake. Um, so the idea that nursing equals caring equals ah mm. is not in my vocabulary. To my mind, caring, it's very, very hard work. But at the same time, it's full of a very fine thing, caring for each other. You know, there's, if I have to think, in an ideal world, we could translate what the NHS is into a lot of other areas of society, people working in teams, working together for the sake of others. I mean, it could be in the production of biscuits, could be like that. I know that sounds crazy, but we think of the caring professions as separate from making cars, but actually making cars could be a caring thing to do. And in fact, if you talk to engineers, they sometimes do talk a bit like that that they're making something very special that mm -hmm. they feel very proud of. I mean, my uncle worked on the production line of Fords and he used to talk about the new Ford car coming out like it was sort of, sort of a gift to the nation. All right. Um, so, you know, I, I learn from sort of nurses and the way they operate in teams with different abilities, different skills. I mean, can you imagine to get me to walk? Okay. So look, I'm a big bloke. I'm six foot two, yeah. right? And I couldn't stand up. So they've got to get under my armpits to hoik me up. Mm -hmm. They gave me a kind of double-decker zimmer to sort of lean on, right, sort of my chest. And then there was Doreen, the nurse, behind me, and then a physio and an occupational therapist. There was at least three or four people, right, just to get me to stand up. And if I think about that, an image comes to me of those people with very different skills and very different training, knowing what to do to get this great hunk, this great lunk of a bloke, to get him to take one step yeah, yeah. and you know full of the optimism and knowledge that in three weeks time I'd actually walk out of the place and me, meanwhile this bloke doing it is going no 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 and I'm, at the same time I'm making this ghastly breathing noise mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> sort of awful involuntary kind of gasping I think it was to do with my blood combination of my blood pressure and my Lack of using my lungs. Yes, and the, yeah, I imagine the COVID. That's right. Yep, lungs, exactly. Yeah. I've had uh, what they call ground glass, you know, and scarring as well, because I also got Klebsiella when I was in intensive care, um, cavitating pneumonia, which is nothing to do with COVID. So I was sort of doubly infected. So all that, and then this thing, this focus of this team of three, possibly four people enabling me to make that first step mm. and I sort of think about that as a, a wonderful symbol of the kind of cooperative effort that well, it was directed at me but directed at thousands of others at the same time and it, even as we're talking it's going on 
you know, since I left hospital three years ago, you know, it's quite hard for me to think now. I think I was the last person ever to be in hospital. <laughs> you, you know, there's that thing <laughs> when you go to stopped. school and you, and you go back to your old school, you get really annoyed that there's other people there. You know, you know what I mean? You go <laughs> yeah, there and you go, what are they, what are they where, why are they here? That's because it's a school, Michael. Well, it's the same thing. I went back to St Pancras and, it, and it, there was a bloke in my bed and I said, why are you in my bed? <laughs> And he said, who are you? And I said, well, I was in that bed three years ago. And then he laughed, because yeah. at first he thought I was a doctor coming to chuck him out or something. <laughs> anyway, I was really quite cross. There was someone in my bed three years later. <laughs> so maybe if we could just change direction a little bit, and we talk about sort of last year um, when the nurses voted for strike action um, historically for the first time. It was almost a year ago today, actually, and you... I think you said that you were 100% there behind their right to strike. I mean, tell us about your choice to support the nurses then and support um, uh, their right to strike. I mean, is it something, is, do you feel that they're not valued enough in our, by our government or by our society? Well, it's a very strange thing, isn't it? That just as I've been trying to say about the idea of caring and working and caring for each other, this should be at the sort of core of our society. I, d I don't understand, but instead, I mean, you know, no disrespect to him, but like what's put up on a pedestal is the apprentice and Lord Sugar, mm -hmm. you know, and this is put up on a pedestal and people sort of fighting each other in order to go out and sell something in the street that maybe people don't even want, like some, I don't know, pork pie with an ice cream on it or something. Or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? They yeah. rush out and do stuff and people go... Oh, wow, you know, and you, when you watch it, you can get sort of drawn into it and go, go on, yeah, go on, sell it, yeah, go and get it. And then people go, yeah, and that way you can become a millionaire, yeah. And you just think, I mean, all right, there are these good programmes that are on, mostly on Channel 5, actually, you know, 24 hours in A&E and um, the ambulance service programmes mm -hmm. and so on. And, and yes, and obviously we have Casualty and Holby City and so on. So, yes, they, they are in the mass media, but... There is a weird way in which we know, I mean, caring right the way across hospitals and into old people's homes and so on, these are low-paid jobs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether, whether people have got their nursing degrees or the people who are caring haven't got those degrees, I don't know the titles these days. I remember way back when I was in hospital and I was knocked down in the road that it was strange brown uniforms that the orderlies, they were called. Oh, yeah. They said, I'm going back to the... 50s well, you 60s. hit by a car, is that right? That's right, yes. I was knocked down in the road in about 1962, I think. 63? Mm -hmm. 63. Um, yes, that's right. So I can't understand how we've arrived at this point in the 21st century where this caring stuff is not just treasured in a sentimental way, but that we don't make it a, a kind of core thing that we reward properly so that then the NHS, the great institution itself, can operate well. It's somehow the idea also that somehow if you pay nurses there'll be less medicine. You know, there's this idea that, oh well, you know, the nurses get pay rise, oh well we won't be able to build that extension, and oh, we won't be able to get the MRI unit. You know, there's a whole kind of to and fro as if... As if it's either or. Either, exactly, mm -hmm. either or. Why? Why? I mean, everybody's health matters. You know that you you can't you can't have an, a functioning society unless people are 
healthy and if they get ill, if they get cured, and then that people should be able to die with dignity. Um, all of that should be at the core of society. And in some strange way, it isn't. And so when nurses said they were going to strike, I mean, I, you said, I chose to do something. It, funny enough, it doesn't actually feel like that to me. It just feels like, and it doesn't even pass my mind that it's a choice. I just, well, of course, you know, immediately flashing into my mind uh, the nurses that looked after me when I was knocked down when I was 17, uh, when I was in a metabolic unit because I was identified as having um, had an underactive thyroid that had gone undiagnosed for 12 years. So I was virtually, well, I virtually died then. I mean, I remember the, the doctor at the hospital when my blood test was done, he said, technically, you're dead. He was American, actually. So he said, technically, you're dead. You should be in a torpor. And I've never forgotten that, the way he pronounced the word torpor. You technically, you're dead. Anyway, believe it or not, his name is Dr. Gesundheit. No one ever believes me that. Oh, uh, wow. They always think it's one of my jokes. But if you, <laughs> if you don't believe me, you can look up Stanford University, Dr. Gesundheit. And there he is, the wonderful Gesundheit. Um, Pronouncing so, you dead, even though... <laughs> yes, that's right, even though I was standing in front of my life. So, in fact, yes, I've been pronounced dead several times in my life, um, straight to my face as I'm standing there. Anyway, at least, at least three times, actually, yes. Because they thought I was dead when I was knocked down in the road as well or at least strangely kind of on the way out. Anyway, but it, so these pictures, these images, come up in front of my eyes of, of the nurses, and also the nurse who looked after my mum in her last days, mm -hmm. um, and uh, also going in to see my dad in hospital and so on, um, and my kids as well. I mean, my stepdaughter, Laura, got knocked down in the road, and um, she was in hospital with a sort of split forehead. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, in the end, it, no, no breakages, it's just the surface stuff. But even so, there are all these images come to mind and, and birth of my children. Why am I leaving that out? Good Lord. God, I get smacked for that. But um, it's not just the caring side, is it? These are highly skilled jobs. They're like, oh, so incredible. I mean, you know, bringing a baby into the world, mm -hmm. I mean, it is so difficult. You know, we're not made, I say we, I mean, anyway, yes, you know, the human race. Um, I mean, some some biological entities, they, they can produce offspring quite easily, but mm -hmm. some are other human beings, we don't yes. seem to have quite worked it out, have we? Have <laughs> no. you got children? No, I no, don't. Yes, anyway, don't want to put you off. Um, <laughs> anyway, it, it is quite a difficult job, and, um, you know, I've seen some, been in there, you know, been wrestled with uh, while babies have come into the world, and uh, it's unbelievable. It is, it's, it's incredible, you know, as you say, the skill, the care, the compassion, you know, and then you're out the door, and you know somebody else is coming in. Mm -hmm. And why, why is this, you know, it has to be rewarded. We have to get recruitment. We have to get retention. And we have to be able to, people can not only be proud of the work, but also, you know, lead decent lives themselves. They must have enough leisure time. You can't have people working 45, 50, 60 hours a week. We know people do. And some of that is because of emergencies, but sometimes also, you know, just the situation. It shouldn't be like that, you know. It, 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 it's, it's a wrongly balanced society that does that, and that, that strike, um, those strikes, that was a way of trying to redress that balance a little bit. 
So you mentioned there people working really long hours and probably we know at the moment that nurses are really experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety and I'm sure that you've experienced high levels of stress, maybe some burnout in your time. Um, do you think something like writing, having a creative outlet, um, has it helped you manage stress and do you think it could help having a creative outlet? Do you think that would help other nurse, nurses with sort of managing their hours is it important to have something either creative or maybe in in your leisure something in your life that um you know you can express yourself totally um yes uh, i mean as human beings if a lot of the work we do is in its own way creative you know if i if i go and make you a meal mm -hmm. then in its own way that's creative you know and a lot of work that we do paid work but of course there is a sense of a routine, and you, you talk about stress, but there's another kind of creativity that I call trial and error without fear of failure, which is a kind of free space. I mean, if you just watch a child in a playground and the way they run between things and whoop about, mm -hmm. well, it's a bit odd, isn't it, that for most of us, we don't do that when we're adults, but why not? I mean, why, why, why do we think of that as being childish or childlike? There's no reason why we shouldn't, you know, pick up a, um, I don't know, a piece of cloth and start embroidering it or something or start in a garden and whooping about it because it's such fun. And in mm -hmm. fact, if you do see people, when they are immersed in these creative activities, if they're not actually physically running about like children are whooping, but they are inside because it's such a delight to them. Well, what is that? That's because what you're doing is finding that freedom, but also what you're doing... And it's easier to talk about this than if you don't actually experience it. That is, what you're doing is expressing the things that concern you in your life. So you, you might be in a pottery class, and the potter is saying you can make whatever you want, and you're kneading some clay, and you're making something. Well, it may not immediately seem as if what you're doing is to do with your life. It maybe feels like a great escape. Well, actually, even that word escape is the idea that you're doing it because that other thing is stressful. So it, it is in its own way expressing something, even in a negative way. I'm not being stressed now, so I'm... Yeah. But in actual fact, almost certainly you'd be expressing it the way you're kneading the dough, or the, <laughs> that's if it's cookery, kneading the clay if it's pottery, will be because of related to your stress. If you do dance, you know, and you create a dance in a dance group, you know, some of that will be expressing it, but also there will be a sense of release. Mm -hmm. And this is so powerful. And with release comes relief. So whatever that be, I mean, I, I write, and that's quite a sort of inactive thing. I mean, you're sort of sitting on your backside and, <laughs> and you're not expressing yourself very physically. I mean, I try to do that in other ways. Um, but all these, I mean, in an ideal world, nurses who are at this peak, peak stress kind of job, should have time and uh, a space and help as well from outside creative, you know, French have a word for it, animateur, that is people who can animate you um, and to help you find things. And, you know, dance and singing and writing, these are all great things to do, pottery. Mm -hmm. um, I'd recommend all of it um, and uh, or, or anything else. I mean, you know, having a a garden next to the hospital. I mean, it's, it would be wonderful, you mm -hmm. know, where people can just sort of go there and make it and 
have flowers and bulbs and things like that. Any of these ways in which you can, as I say, trial and error without fear of failure. Um, and it can be in any form. I mean, look at um, not the Bake Off competition bit, but the bit that Joe Brand does where people bring in... Oh, uh, yes, afterwards. You yes, know. Extra you slice. Exactly. Look at those wonderful things that people make, you know, sort of a Thomas the Tank Engine cake or something, mm -hmm. and, and, and the energy that goes into it, and the fun. I mean, the fun that people have, both making it and then laughing about it because the, the funnel fell off the engine or something like that, and everyone's laughing and so on. And you think, what is that? That is... That is release and relief. That's what that is. That's, I'm making this thing and it's going to be for an event or for a child or for this program or whatever. And then, you know, and you can see the joy and then people taste it and go, mmm. Or even if they go, no, I don't like that. That's funny as well. And, and that social thing as well around creativity, you know, this is, this is wonderful. It's very, very restorative, very, yeah, we should add another R there. You know, we've got, re we got re re release and relief and restore. Mm -hmm got nice three R's to think about. And, I mean, since you've had COVID, and, I mean, you tell me now that this is your third near-death experience that you've had, is there, like, a certain... Is there a different approach, or, like, have you been um, to your writing um, that you've found? Or, I mean, how do you sort of start putting pen to paper when it comes to um, uh, sharing your story of the, of the pandemic? How did you, how did you start that, and... Was yeah, there, there was a approach? bit of a block to start off with, actually, because it was all so confusing. Mm -hmm. And actually, some of the confusion I didn't have words for. It's a bit hard to describe, but um, some of it was just sensation. And that, it, I mean, if you think the amount of stuff they put inside you, I mean, your brain is slightly kind of blasted yeah, yeah. away. I mean, it's a lot of morphine for 40 days, you know, so uh, that's a bit less. Um, so I would sit there, I can see myself sitting there, and Emma said she, she got a sun lounger yes. for me to sit on, and she sort of forced me to sit on it. Is this when you were back home? Yes, that's she right. She didn't bring it into the hospital? She, no, no, well, she wasn't allowed <laughs> in, wasn't she? Of so course, anyway. yeah. No, no, so she, she said, go and sit on the lounger. Mm -hmm. Go and sit on it. And, I, and, so, and then I can remember lying there and just sort of staring with the sensation of being there. It's very hard to describe because it, I'm not in that situation now. So I didn't write. And then I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll write fragments. I'll write just little bits. Mm -hmm. So I just started scribbling sort of four or five lines. And then I'd sort of turn over the page and then write another four or five as I remembered things. And remember things people say, that, that's sort of something I spend a lot of time doing. So, you know, with doctors coming and saying, you were very poorly. And I thought, wasn't I? And then somebody else would come and go, you were very poorly. And I kept thinking, why do they keep saying, what does it mean? Did, did they have a bad cold? Because I didn't know, you see. No. So what they meant was, you nearly went. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know very poorly meant you nearly went. So I didn't quite put the two you together. didn't translate. Exactly. So then I wrote a little piece about doctors keep coming to my bed saying very poorly. So, or it would be something to do with, or I'd remember the, the thing about the 58 and the 112, the, the numbers. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. Um, so I'd remember things like that. or. And did the writing help you remember? Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you think, you, you look at a... Let's say you're looking at a sort of muddy, bog-like stream in front of you, and you think, how can I cross that? 
and then out of magic, so imagine a Disney movie that some sort of rocks appear. So you've got stepping stones. Oh, look, there's one. I'll go and stand on that one. And that's like the first book you've scribbled. And then as you stand on that one, Disney animation, up pops another one. <laughs> and then you step from the stepping stone you're on to the next one. Well, that's what the writing's like. See. You see, so you're getting across this sort of boggy morass that is my was my brain. And now I'm sort of getting steps. And somehow those steps are to help me understand what had happened to me. Um... Because I also had another sensation that's even harder to describe, is that if you imagine me in the now, at home, let's say two weeks at home, Emma says something to me, and then I think, oh yes, I understand that. And let's say she said, you, you were a long time in intensive care, and I think, I understand that. Or let's say my daughter says to me, uh, you know, she's looking forward to going to university. Then the next day, I'd have forgotten that. Right. Right. So that Emma might say, you were a long time in intensive care. And I go, was I? As if she hadn't said it the day before. And then Emma, Elsie, my daughter, would say, and I'm going to, I'm going to university. And I go, oh, good. Well, are you? When, when's that? Do you see? So what's very strange is these layers of not of thinking I know what's going on. And then, and then they'd say, well, you, I told you that yesterday. And then I'd get a faint recollection. I'd go, oh, right, you did, didn't you? Yes. So how long did that take to move out of that sort of confusion? I'm probably still in it, actually. Yeah, um, um, yes, it's a bit hard to say, but I don't think I kind of cleared that sort of period, probably not for a few months, mm -hmm. even though I was doing lots of things. I, was, I went back, back to work by Zoom, so I was doing performances for children mm -hmm. on Zoom, or even a bit of teacher training, INSEP stuff for t teachers, even though... Of course, because we were still was... sort of in and out of lockdown at that time. Yeah, and that's right. Yeah. And I was completely zonked, now looking back on it. And also, I can't really remember it. Mm -hmm. So there's another thing. So, you know, someone will say, oh, it was great you did that thing for our school. And I go, yeah, right, yeah. Sort of like, yeah, good. And what school was that? And they go, oh, yes, it was uh, Braxton Manor. And I go, right. All right. So was, do we think that's a... Was that the coma or was it the COVID? It was a combination of both I think of them. It's, from what I gather, it's a combination of both. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I do have... Yeah, I do have a problem with names. I'm going to now test myself. You've told me your name. <laughs> now just, just hang on. No, it's not Emily. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You said your name... No, you see, it's gone. Show me your tag. It's Alison. It's Alison. You told it to me. And I know the name Alison. It's not an unfamiliar name to me. But it's gone. And in fact, I had a thing... But is that just the age now, Michael? Well, indeed. Excuse I'm 77. My no, 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 I'm rudeness. 77. So, it, well, yes, no, absolutely. There, there are plenty of, you know, 75-year-olds, 80-year-olds and so on who say, oh, yeah, what name thing? Yeah, 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 how happens. But I know it's quite very different from before I was ill. So before I was ill, names, no problem. Mm -hmm. But I now have a thing, and it's quite embarrassing, actually, because someone, I mean, like now, or there's a woman that I've worked with at a, a teacher training place um, for 10 years, 20 years, I don't know, for, forever. And then I was just doing some introductions, and I went, oh, no. and, and there it was, just that blank. And then I have to have tricks to try and do it, sometimes the alphabet, sometimes whatever. Mm -hmm. 
And yet, weirdly, sometimes it's completely the opposite, that everyone around me has forgotten her name, and I'm the one who's... Yeah, it's and that's particularly, you know, and I go, that one, or, you know, bits out of plays and things like that, or actors' names, sometimes it's just badong, and people going, oh, how did you remember that? So it's, it's a very strange, differentiated thing going on in my brain about memory. The brain works in funny ways. I remember song lyrics from all the Spice Girls songs yeah. that will be ingrained in my brain forever, but other things like will Can you remember all their out. names? Of course. I bet you can, yes. Yeah. So okay, <laughs> so I can. There was Mel C, there was Sporty Spice. That it was Mel C. Mel C was Sporty Spice. Uh, wait a minute. Then there was um, the one with the gingery hair. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Jerry. Jerry. Jerry, not Jerry and the Pacemakers, we're in Liverpool. Well, there was another Mel. And there was a Mel B. That's right. That's right. And then there was Baby Spice. Yes. Who I met her mum, or stepmum. Her name is Bunting. Yeah, Bunton. Bunton. Emma. Her first name, I was going to say Mel. <laughs> no, you've already had two Mel's. Okay, and then, yeah. of course, you know, the, David Beckham's Yes, she, that wife. was Posh Spice. Well, that's right. And her name is Victoria. That's right. And she married David Beckham, and they've got at least one child, one of whom is called Brooklyn. That's right. That's not bad, is it? That's all right, yeah. Is that all right? Yes, that's all right. Yeah, I didn't do very well, though. I didn't, I didn't know that Sporty, Sporty Spice, Mel C. I think I thought Mel C was Mel B, and I was going to go back to Mel A. That was going to be a Mel <laughs> no, A, B, C. There's no Mel A, just no, B and no, C. No, there isn't. But anyway. Anyway. And, 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 well, my only excuse there was I was a bit to one side. I mean, it did, you were probably dancing. To the to the Spice Girls. Oh yeah, well yeah, they were very much my era when they came out. When you know, I was just going into secondary school. Oh, the right age for it. Yeah, very much the right age. Before we finish, I just want to ask you. We're going to have lots of nurses listening to this podcast, and I just thought, what 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 do you hope for them for their future? And um, because it's obviously a very tough time for them at the moment. There's you know shortages and all this. What what would you like to see? for nurses in the future? Well, I'd like to see them well paid. I'd like to see them have a career pathway, if they choose to take it, of being able to increase their professionalism. Mm -hmm. I think in an ideal world, there ought to be a route that you could go from nursing into becoming a doctor. But anyway, in an ideal world, there'd be a ladder Mm -hmm. that you could add on credit, study, experience. And in the end, you could become a doctor. It Mm -hmm. might take you till you were 40, but it wouldn't matter because you would have that fantastic nursing experience, but mm-hmm. we block things off in our culture and society. So so professional development, you'd be well rewarded in your work, and I would say, pleading with you, please look after yourselves. No matter how intense and involved you are, please look after yourselves, and not just by having a great time, going to the movies, going dancing, whatever, not just that, but you actually make some space to do something that is creative, either a class or a group or a book group or anything that is a space away from the medicine, but it may be that you can express yourselves through it, that doesn't matter, but is is in a non-medical situation because the medical situation is very specific. And see if you can find a space where you can express yourselves doing it. And ideally with somebody else, whether it's your partner or whether it's with your children, but maybe other people, um, and doing it. Maybe gardening, dancing, singing. Singing is fantastic. It's great health-wise anyway, using your lungs and all the rest of it. Um, So I'd say that as well.
Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time.